of the, I guess, 14th years now, 14 summer or, or uh, fall, rather, semesters open since we've lived in San Marcos. This is by far the strangest in circumstance, no doubt. But I know what it was that I was going to say earlier. That is that if you are visiting with us or back in town because you are in college and you're looking for a church home or a place to belong, we're grateful that you're here and that you've taken time to at least investigate who we are. And our prayer is that we will be available uh, to you and that we will introduce ourselves, but we will also include you over the next uh, two to four to six years, however long your college journey uh, may end up being, even though it may not be intended to be that way now. And I do know that we have some who've come back in town uh, because of college, and we're thankful for that. I have no doubt that before this day is over, that David Jones will say a thing or two about the um, upcoming uh, McCarty events that are going to take place, Bible class being started. You can find those in the bulletin. Game night tonight in particular. But I, as I've done, I guess for all of those 14 years, have made some type of plea on that Sunday morning of these things starting back to be a part of that, to join in. Now, I would say not only is our situation different than it has been the last 13 years just because of COVID and pandemic and mask wearing and all of that. It's different because of the dynamics that make up our, our group, our college group right now. We have a number of individuals who are grad students. We have a number of individuals who are college age but working and not working toward a degree, but rather toward a paycheck. And so I think I can say this, that you are also welcomed at these events and encouraged to be a part of these things. And if you have any questions, you can see uh, my dad about that and uh, the McCarty director, and you can talk to him. And uh, you can see one of the elders that are here. You can find one of the members, and we will point you, hopefully, in the right direction. So we're excited. Uh, maybe the return of the college uh, student body and a little bit of normalcy will help to level out um, our anxiety and difficulties over the last few months. There was a staggering and almost unbelievable headline that sort of got shoved to the back of the news cycle early on this past week. And it was shoved to the back and to the forefront came the, the latest election polls and the latest celebrity statements and the latest uh, social unrest. But you may have heard it. The headline would have went something like this. U.S. Marshals find 39 missing children in Georgia. In one two-week effort, 39 missing children were found, I believe 26 of them at the same location. What they believed to have uncovered and, and, and to have been uh, investigating was a sex trafficking ring that expands across a number of states and perhaps countries. In fact, digging a little deeper into those numbers, uh, that they, were, they were found in Georgia that in 2019, Georgia had 400 or almost 400 sex trafficking cases alone. Neighboring Florida had over 900 cases. Now, I don't say all of that this morning to incite us to anger or to frustration about our world, to, to highlight the evil that exists, although we could, and we, I believe, be justified in taking that approach to the discussion because of how disgusting that thought is, what people in our world will do because of the the ungodly and devilish lust that they have uh, to fulfill. I say that because in our, in our discussions for this month, and we're at the end of those, we've been talking about 
uh, taking a fresh look at salvation, at redemption, at rescue. And I thought about the, the relief in the hearts and minds of those children as they're found, taken out of the hands of those who would seek to destroy them. As over the course of this last week, how they've been reunited with families and how that joy and that celebration has been, has been abundant because salvation's been found. Rescue has been had. And certainly it can, if we will allow it, give us a picture, an illustration of what it feels like for someone to be lost and marred in sin and to have Jesus save their soul and redeem them and bring them out and liberate them. This morning we read from Psalm 51. We want to start there today. We want to go back a few verses before and pick up in verse 7. David said, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's joy in the liberation of our souls. In fact, that's why we started this series of lessons at the beginning of this month with an honest and and direct look at what sin does when it's left uncovered, when it's left to to lay dormant or to run rampant in our souls and in our lives, that that sin will, will, will truly destroy. And the liberation from that sin should cause all of us, or at least the possibility of liberation, should cause all of us to seek God, to be faithful to Him, and desire to want to be His children. That's the joy of the salvation that we have. In fact, 99% of the time when we talk about salvation, we talk about it from the standpoint of Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13. For He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of, the, of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You can't talk about salvation without redemption and forgiveness. That's what it's all about. Pardon, release, forgiveness. But there is another word. If we're going to look closely and in depth at salvation itself, there's another word that should stand out in our minds. In fact, we use it, but unfortunately, without explanation, we use it interchangeably with the idea of liberation or pardon. We use the word conversion, don't we? We talk about when someone is saved, they are converted. And in a religious sense, we will interchange the word salvation and the word conversion, the word pardon and the word conversion, as if they mean the same thing, without any explanation, without any discussion. And maybe for those of us who know what we're talking about, we get it. But just take yourself out for a moment of the, of the spiritual discussion and think about using those words interchangeably in other contexts. Let's go back to our headline, 39 children found or the missing children found. They were, they were rescued. Imagine if that headline had read, 39 children converted in Georgia. Wouldn't mean quite the same thing to us, would it? We wouldn't see it that way. Suppose you were, you were going into a foreign country and you went up to the, to, to the counter and you wanted to exchange or, or to convert your, your American money to the currency of the country that you were arriving at. And you said to them, I want to I save my money. I want to pardon my money here. Well, they, they might believe there was a little bit of disconnect between language barriers, but in reality, we'd be using the wrong word, right? Words don't mean the same thing. They, they describe part of the same process, but they don't mean the same thing. And so we have to be able, if we're going to have a, an in-depth look at salvation, to know the difference between these two words. And so this morning, 
our thoughts are centering around this idea. If we're going to look closely at salvation, we're going to have to look at the fact that when we are saved, we must be drastically different than we were before. There must be a conversion in order for salvation to take place. Did did you catch at the end of the reading in Psalm 51 that David talked about having a renewed spirit, having a clean or created heart? He's alluding to that fact, but the New Testament doesn't just allude to it. The New Testament teaches it over and over and over again that conversion is necessary for salvation. Listen to some of these passages. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Not just, if you understand, a saved creature or a pardoned creature, but there's a, a change that's made, right? There's a difference that takes place. He's new. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15, For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Romans 6, a familiar passage to most of us in verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might also walk, look at the wording, in newness of life. Something that's different, something that's changed, something that is converted from one state and brought over to another. Jesus described it, didn't he, as he talked to Nicodemus in John 3? How the man, unless he's born again, can't enter the kingdom of heaven? That that birth would be new and that creation in that birth would be new. He would be different. He would be converted. I'm not trying to disconnect salvation from pardon, but to connect conversion to the pardon process. We're drastically different. We speak in these terms throughout the New Testament. Colossians 3, 10 and, and, or 9 and 10, Paul talks about the old man or the old self and the new man or the new self because there is a conversion that must take place. And so this this tension that sometimes exists between the idea of salvation and conversion, I'll just say this, many people want salvation without conversion, right? In fact, sometimes we promote salvation without conversion. When our ploy and our plea is, come get, come partake, come benefit, let God rescue you, let God redeem you, to the point that we don't add on to that discussion what is required of us, and I don't mean, and we'll walk through this in a moment, but I don't mean individual acts that lead toward salvation. I mean a life in general, as if we're saved to freedom that requires nothing of us. Next month, Lord, we're going to talk all about that and these exalted expectations for people in Christ. But if I'm going to appreciate the salvation process, I'm going to have to understand and accept the fact that it's more than what I get. It's what I'm made into what I become and what's expected of me in the process. Now, there are a number of routes that we could go to and, and go through this morning to illustrate the connection between salvation and conversion. But what I want us to do is I want us to take that plan of salvation that we talk about, that we, you, we usually rehearse at the end of a lesson, invite people to obey and to find their, their place on that journey and, and pick up maybe where they've left off and finish it out to find Christ we would say that you need to hear the Word of God, that you need to believe the things that you've heard, that you need to repent of your past sins, that you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You need to be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of sins. All of those things necessary leading to that full pardon and restitution and restoration in my relationship with God. And I believe in that, that simple formulated plan 
is embedded, whether we ever have understood it that way or not, or viewed it that way, embedded in that plan is conversion. It's change on every level. Now, now before we get there, let me just say, if you're not familiar with Churches of Christ, that that five-step process may may be a little out of character or different than, than what you've heard before, if you are familiar with the Church of Christ and you're a member of the church here, you, you know that probably from, from, a, from a child and can repeat it. Let me just say this. Realize that men over the years have developed that series of thoughts and put them together based on the scriptures. But there's other ways we can present how we come to Christ. I say that because sometimes we feel like, well, if we don't repeat those five things in the sermon, we haven't accomplished the, the plea for, for salvation. According to, to religious history... That, that five-step process was sort of crystallized and put together by a man by the name of Walter Scott. Um, during the days of the Restoration Movement, they were having very little evangelistic success. And so Walter Scott was sent out onto the Western Reserve and was given the commission to preach this, this newly restored gospel and, and share with people that it wasn't about denominationalism, it wasn't about man-made teachings, it was all about Scripture. And so, so Scott tried to find a way to encapsulate the entire process in a memorable fashion. What's interesting is what he did is he would go into a town in the morning and he would go to the schoolyard and he'd be allowed to to, to be there at the school with the kids and he'd teach them this five-finger exercise. And he would get them to repeat after him. Each finger would represent something different. Now, he didn't start with hearing. I think he started with faith and included something else at the end. But as he went through this five-finger process, then he would say, now, if that interests you, go tell your mom and dad because I'll be at so-and-so tonight, and I'll be talking about those things. And those kids would go home, and they would be able to repeat those five things back to mom and dad. And then mom and dad would come here, Walter Scott. They would end up being baptized for the mission of their sins and becoming a part of the Lord's church. So it was effective. And so we've sort of adopted that model as, as a memory tool. But working through those five things, it becomes very evident that conversion, that newness, is in each one of them. Let's investigate that together for just... Just a few minutes this morning. Number one, when I hear, when I hear, my heart is, giving, is given something new to consider, new to listen to. Again, isn't this the theme of the New Testament? Well, that, that memorable moment on the top of Mount Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 when Peter was standing there with Christ and Moses and Elijah and Peter makes that that foolish statement that says, listen, let's build three tabernacles. Let's, 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 let's elevate all of these men. And a cloud shattered over them. And a voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Now, the, the, the force of that was Moses has spoken, but the message of Moses is over. Elijah has spoken, but the message of Elijah is over. Jesus is the one that we hear. He's the one that we listen to. The Hebrew writer would say it in this way in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After God, after he spoke long ago in the, to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and whom also he made the world. Hear Jesus. Listen to him. That, that doesn't mean just or simply attend the church service and listen to a preacher. And it doesn't just mean read your Bible and find out the facts. It means that we investigate the claims of 
Christianity, the claims of the church that we are attending, the claims of the preacher, we compare those to the Word of God and we listen for Jesus in them. Jesus talked about a people in Matthew chapter 13 who had closed their ears, didn't he? They had closed their hearts. And he said the only way that you'll be able to to understand is if you open them. Friends, that's always been true. And when I'm called to hear, it's not just a surface command that starts the dominoes that leads to salvation. It's giving my heart something new to consider. And by the way, there are a lot of things that you and I could be considering in the world that we live in, right? There are a lot of voices out there. There are a lot of preachers. There are a lot of churches. There are a lot of religious books. There are a lot of claims that people make. I have to look for Jesus. I have to hear Him. Give my heart something new to consider. Give my mind something new to think about. Yet some people approach religious studies by saying, I've heard that before. I'll never believe it anyway. Or I've always believed this. Or so-and-so told me this. Without realizing, automatically throwing a barrier into being able to hear Jesus. I'm going to be truly converted. That leads to my being saved from my sins. I'm going to have to give my heart something new to consider. I'm going to have to hear the word of God. Number two, in believing, I'm given something new to trust. In believing, I'm given something new to trust. Take our minds to the 11th chapter of Hebrews for just a moment to to make two uh, pretty important but but simple points about trust and faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now think with me for a moment. How do you hope for something that you've never seen? How would you even know to hope for it? Because somebody told you about it, right? You heard something. You haven't witnessed it. You haven't seen it. It hasn't come to pass in your life. But somebody told you that. That harkens back to that first thought. I give myself something new to to consider. If it's proven true, I then trust that. And I start making decisions on it. Don't, Don't we always make decisions on the things that we trust? Every bridge that we cross in our automobiles is done so with a certain level of trust. Now, not every bridge I've ever crossed, I've had the same amount of trust in the others. But with some level of trust, we've crossed those bridges based on the information. We, we, we haven't seen our vehicle on the other side. We're still on this side of it. But we faith and we trust that we're going to go across. And we make that decision. Now, who is it or what is it that we trust as it leads us to conversion and salvation? Well... Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 then reveals that, just five verses later. Faith is that which believes that God is, end of the passage, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love the way one writer suggested it. We believe that God can and God will do what he said. He has both the power to do it and the desire to do it. And my faith is hinged upon both of those, my trust in him. So if I haven't, if I haven't reached the point of being able to put my, my life, my heart, my future in the hands of the almighty God, then I need to go back and hear some more. I need to go back and learn some more because my hearing leads me to something new and someone new to trust in. I don't know who or what you trust in this morning. But for many people in our world, And for many people in the Lord's church, we trust in what was handed to us by the generation before us. And we trust it for that reason. 
And at some point, if that's the only reason we trust in what we do, our trust is going to be shaken. Our faith is going to at least waver for a moment. What God desires through this, this course of, uh, of coming to Him and, and finding pardon and, and redemption and forgiveness is that we learn to trust in Him without question and at some point in time without reservation. Now, I would admit to you that's a lifelong journey, isn't it? To, to not question, to not wonder. But as we do and as God is faithful, then it resolves that issue and I move to the next one and he resolves that issue and I move to the next one and then he resolves that issue. Faith gives me, believing gives me something new to trust. So I hear, I consider something different. I believe, I trust something or someone different. Number three, I'm called to repent. This gives me something new to do. Now, I know we'll stop and say, well, repentance means to change the mind, to change thinking, and it absolutely does. But true repentance will never stop at the changing of the mind because we are controlled in our actions by the things that we think. We don't act outside of ourselves. We don't act outside of our thoughts. We don't act outside of our character. Our actions are a direct result of all of that. So if I consider something new, if I trust something new, then I'll have something new to do. My, my behavior will be modified. Listen as Peter writes to, to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. It's, it's not something that's commanded right here. It's just the expectation. He says, in all of this, that is in the way you act. He's already addressed that beginning in chapter 2 and going through the middle of chapter 4 about their life of submission and of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and all those things that Jesus would tell us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, in this, they are surprised. Now, the they are the people that you used to run with, the people that you used to hang out with, the world that you used to live in. They will be surprised that you don't run with them. The same excess of dissipation and they malign you. They will belittle you because they don't understand you because you're doing something different. You ever had someone approach you about that in your life? If you have not lived a morally upright life for all of your life, who are surprised that you claim to be a Christian? Surprised that you don't do the things that, that you used to do, the things they still do. You see, if that's happened, what you have illustrated is this, this turning point of repentance. You've lived a different life. He, Peter would say earlier, the reason for this is you are now a people and you didn't used to be one. You're now a nation you didn't used to be one. You're changed. You're different. That's what the salvation process does. Sometimes we, we'll sing the, the older invitation song, uh, Just As I Am, and, and sort of leave the impression that as I come to him, I stay just who I am, just like I am, and he deals with me. That's really not the way it works. When I come to him, I empty myself, and I empty my, 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 my cares and my agenda and my thoughts, and I let him guide me and live in me and shape me because repentance gives me something new to do. Number next, when I'm called to confess... When I'm called to confess, it gives me something new to say. It gives me something new to say. You know, it's interesting, and there are, there are a handful of passages we could consider regarding confession. I want to consider one that we probably don't normally. Listen to the description of the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ, saints, so we know they're Christians, Saints by calling, with all those in every place who call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 
Now, he's not talking there necessarily about that confession you make at the waters of baptism before you're immersed and, and saved. But he is talking about the confession that begins there. That these individuals call the name of the Lord. That wasn't a one-time act. It was a lifelong process. And they call him Lord. As I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I acknowledge that, I confess that, I believe that, I accept that. Friends, that drastically changes my life. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, Why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? Because the expectation was, if you're going to be the servant of Jesus, you're going to be the, the one who obeys him. It gives me something different to say. And again, just like we have a lot of things we can hear in this world, we have a lot of things we can say in this world. What have you said this week? Have you ever, ever thought about sitting down at the end of a week and, and just collecting your thoughts about the words that you've spoken? Now, for most of us, we have a hard time retracing every conversation, right? How much have we talked about him? How much has he been on our lips? How much has our confession that he is Lord been seen by the words that we've said? There's a chance that, that for some, sometimes, our singing on Sunday morning and our dedication and adoration to him becomes the overwhelming majority of words we speak in a week about Jesus being our Lord and Savior. What a shame that would be. We're called to speak of him and through him every day. And that confession begins in the conversion process. It's not just something new in our lips to say before a, a, an act of baptism. It's a new song, a new direction, a new phrase, a new slogan. Jesus is Lord. With that, we will also say things like, Here am I, send me. Not my will, but thy will be done. I will do as you say. I will let down my nets. My Lord and my God. Our vocabulary changes in the conversion process. And finally, baptism gives me something new to be. Gives me something new to be. I'm going to sing the song of invitation in just a moment. Kind of move into our, our invitation because the, the sermon allows us to do that naturally today. Realize that baptism is not just an, an addendum to the end of the process. Okay, It's not just a ceremony of a local church to verify the commitment that someone has made through this process. It's the culminating act. It's probably here at this moment that, that maybe here at university we would differ from some other religious groups in our, our area and our world. And, and differences are not bad as long as they're not, based, they're not contradicting Scripture. The Scripture makes it plain. makes it plain that I am not Galatians 3.27 in Christ till I have put on Christ in baptism. Acts 22.16 teaches that until I've been baptized, my sins have not yet been washed away. That I've not yet received, Acts 2.38, the remission of those sins. That 1 Peter 3.21 says very plainly, I haven't been saved. Now, I'm on that journey. I'm working toward that. I'm, I'm altering and changing and growing and converting. But that last step, that last act, is to willingly submit, to be buried in water. So as Romans 6, 3-5 teaches, I can rise to walk a new life. And I become a new person. You ever wanted to start over? I have. I have. But you know, most of the time we don't get that chance in life. 
The mistakes we've made will follow us and they will carry us until, until we come to Jesus. And then we can be a new creature, a new creation. We can start over. That's why the conversion process is so important to the salvation description and experience. It's not about just what I get. It's what I become. I become a new person. So I don't have to, to fret and worry and wonder, how am I going to make up for this? How am I going to redo this? How am I going to get out of this? I just come to Jesus and I say, I'll give it all to you. You can have it. And you can have me. And I'll just live for you. I'll just let you live in me. You will be my song. And you'll be my words. You'll be my sermon. You'll be my interaction. I'll die. I'll bury that man. And I'll walk anew. A closer look at salvation mandates that we see it as a conversion process. If you haven't, as you need to this morning, Seriously and honestly, you need to consider where you stand and who you are. Conversion process is individual and it has an individual journey. But there's a church family here who wants to help you along that journey. Who would love to study with you and talk with you and answer questions that you might have. You know, there, there's a possibility. There's a, those of us here who've gone to the waters of baptism. Without a conversion thought in mind. We wanted to get rather than be. We would encourage you this morning to change that thought in your heart and mind. And if we can help you and assist you, come to the Lord while we stand and while we sing.